Let's turn for a little to the chapter we read in the uh, book of Psalms, Psalm number 34. Book of Psalms, Psalm number 34. <clears throat> and uh, reading at verse, verses 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. People who go through uh, very difficult times, times of real hardship, the way they, they come through, the way they survive, is often a great encouragement and inspiration to, to other people. And that is certainly true with regard to David, the great soldier king, uh, the great psalmist. Because while he, there's no question whatever, as king, he enjoyed many of the great, uh, I suppose, the trappings that go with, with such an honor. We know that the road to the kingdom, and even his life as king, was full of difficulties and problems and trials. Uh, but he came through them all, and he came through them victorious, even although sometimes they were hard and difficult, and sometimes he himself uh, through some of what he did, uh, which wasn't good, yet the Lord, as is so true, that God works all things together for good. Now, David, in his life, shows how the Lord is able to sanctify the experience that's, that we go through to us. And in this psalm, we're told about David's brush with death. We find this in the book of Samuel. Go to Samuel, you'll find uh, the, the, the narrative about it. But this psalm comes from, from David's brush with death. It tells us at the beginning when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. You remember how David was being chased by Saul for years. David, of course, had been, become the great champion in killing Goliath and causing the rout of the Philistines. And uh, David, after that, Remember how the woman sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And from that moment, Saul became consumed by jealousy. He became in, in, intensely jealous of David. And that jealousy, uh, in the end, wanted to kill. That's what, je that's what jealousy, we've often said that, envy is murderous in, in its intent. That is why so often in the Bible there are warnings against jealousy and envying. Because... It makes a person who is jealous incapable of seeing good in the person they're jealous of. And it brings, it begins, it works like a cancer away in them so that uh, there is a desire to murder. And we've, we've mentioned it often enough before, but you go through the Bible and you will see the so many instances of where envy has ended in murder, like where Cain murdered Abel because he was, envy, he was jealous because God had accepted his able sacrifice and not his and we saw saw how although Daniel survived in the den of lions he was in that den of lions being put to death because the other leaders were jealous of him because of the prominence that the king had given to him Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they were they wanted to kill him and if it hadn't been for the elder brother that's what would have happened but uh, they sold into slavery because they were jealous of him, because of his, that he seemed to be the father's favorite. The Lord Jesus was put to death 
Pilate says that. He knew that because for envy they had delivered him up. So you see, envy, that's the way it works out. It wants to kill. It wants to destroy. And so uh, Saul had become so jealous of David and he had become an outlaw. He was public enemy number one with a price in his head so that anybody who killed David was actually doing Saul, would have been rewarded by Saul. And it had become become so intense for, for David in the land of Israel that, and he was just surviving by the skin of his teeth, we use that expression, uh, over and over again, that he felt in the end that there was nowhere left for him to hide in Israel. So what he had done was he had gone over into the land of the Philistines, which of course was putting himself also in danger because he had been the one who had championed Israel against the Philistines. And of course it wasn't long until he was recognized and he was taken and he was brought before the king of the Philistines. And David realized at that point that his life was in mortal danger. While Saul was wanting to kill him, there is no question whatever but that the king of the Philistines would want to kill him as well. He was the one who had killed Goliath and had led the charge against the Philistines. So we find that David uh, decided, and again, we've got to, we've got to remember that when you're When your life is on the line, you're liable to do anything. And what David did was, he pretended that he was a a madman. He had pretended that he was was mad. And he put in an Oscar-winning performance. Because it tells us that he was scratching the doors. And he was letting his, his spittle dribble down his beard. And he was acting like he was crazy. And the king was completely taken in by it. And he said to his men, what have you brought that man here for? You can see that man is mad. Get him out of here. And so David was put out. He was free. Now, that's what David did. And we're told about that in the book of Samuel. But you know, when we come here to Psalm 34, it tells us the other side of what David was doing. And that's how we are to be in life. We're to do our part, but we're also to cry to the Lord and trust the Lord and depend upon the Lord because David tells us exactly what was going on. And David says in verse 4, I, I, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And I'm telling you, he, there were some fears going on in David's heart when he was brought before the king. And then it says in verse 6, This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So that's what was going on in David's heart. At the same time as he was pretending to be mad in the presence of Abimelech the king. And uh, so while David did his part, God was the one who overruled everything because you've got to remember what the Bible tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he will turn it whichever way he will. So you see how the Lord influenced Abimelech to say, okay, just get, get that man out of here. Because it would have been very easy for Abimelech to say, all right, kill him. But no, he drove David out. And so... This is what we have here. And in a sense, following on from these earlier verses, we find in verse 17, David using quite similar language, where he says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears 
and delivers them out of all their troubles. <clears throat> and uh, we really need to take hold upon what is being said here because this is, this is one of the, the, the great truths in life. That the Lord is always there for his people. And see what it says. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. Now it's important to notice the word cry. And when you cry for something, it's not a whisper. It's a cry is loud and a cry speaks of urgency and need. And that is something that the Lord will always respond to. Because, you know, so often we can come to the Lord and our prayers are lukewarm. They're indifferent. Our heart's not in it. We can be kind of cold and remote and distant. Well, yes, we're praying. But it's not, it's not the cry. It's not the urgent prayer. It's not the cry of the needy. And the Lord knows when we're real and when we're just going through the motions. And there's a huge difference. Because, you know, we can, we can go through day after day after day. And if somebody said to you are, you, are you praying to the Lord? You say, oh yeah, I'm praying to the Lord. I pray to the Lord every day. But are, are we really praying? Is this prayer coming? Is it coming from our heart? Is there an urgency? Are we meaning business? If you went to somebody and were, you had something really important, you knew that this person alone has the ability to give you what, you what you want, you wouldn't go in a kind of half-hearted way saying, ah, well, if they're up to it, I... I, I. So you would go there pleading your cause. You would, you would be really genuinely with an urgency in your heart bringing your case to them. And so it should be when we come to the Lord. And that's what we're told. That's the kind of prayer that the Lord hears. When the righteous cry for help. That's what we're told. When the righteous cry for help, um, the Lord hears and delivers them. So we're then told there that the, 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 prior to that, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. So we tie these two verses in together. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And he's ready to hear because verse 15 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Isn't that lovely? You know how a parent, they, their eyes are always on their little children. You won't find parents sort of wandering away and leaving their little ones there and going away and an hour later say, oh, I wonder, where are they? I wonder how they're doing. No. When they're we, you're watching their every move. You're there to help them. If anything should happen, your ear is ready for their cry, for their shout. You recognize straight away if that's a call of distress. How much more the, our Heavenly Father, His eye is upon us all the time and His ear is open to our cry. Isn't that lovely? All the time. This is how He is as our Heavenly Father. So that's one of the great, the great blessings that we have in life. His eye is always upon us and his ear to our cry. Have you really thought about that? That's how it is right now. This moment. Every moment. That God the Father in heaven. That his eye is upon you. He's watching you. And he's watching you with a good eye. He's watching you because he loves you. He's watching you because he cares for you. And his ear is open. His ear is ready. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to cry to him. All the time. So there's this 
activity, as it were, an active awareness all the time of our Heavenly Father. And yet it couldn't be more different to his reaction to those who do evil. Because it tells us in verse 16 that the face of the Lord is against. That's what it tells us. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now that's a thought. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's not a solemn thought. That God's face is against them. For his people, his eye is upon them in love. His ear is open to their cry. And when a person's face is against you, you have the idea of almost a hardness. A, it's like a, 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 a granite-like look. It's not the, it's not, it's, it couldn't be more different to the reaction of the face of love. And it's, it's, a, very, it's a very very solemn. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There are many today who will be doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Their, their, their life is towards evil. And they care not a jot about the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should know? As somebody said in the Bible. They live their life like that. Don't care about God. No intention of caring about God. They're ready to trample his name into the dust. But let me say one thing. This face of God that is against them. Unless God has mercy upon them. One day they will see that face against them. That face at their death will loom large. And that face throughout eternity will always be against them. And it's a solemn thought. Because that's what the, that's what the Bible tells us. But the, the, and then it says to cut off the memory of those. That's what it says, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And again, that's solemn. That means to turn their name into, into a cursor, to, to blot out their memory. But then, verse 18, the Lord is near. Very often you find that in the Psalms, that there's, a, there's a, an alternating between two different takes on things. There's life and there's this type and there's that. It often moves from one situation into another. And David often does that in his, in his writing. You have the righteous and the unrighteous. And so he says now, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And this very much is a description of the Lord's people, the broken-hearted and the crushed spirit. That doesn't mean that those who aren't believers don't have crushed spirits and broken hearts. Of course they do. But what is spoken of here is in, is in spiritual terms. This is speaking of uh, the experience of, of those who, who love the Lord. And this brokenness and crushing comes about when we begin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened at the very beginning. You put your mind back. There came a point when you got, your will was broken. And your spirit was crushed. That's how God began to work within you. Prior to that you thought you were alright in yourself. You didn't need God. And you were saying to yourself. Oh, alright I can. Yeah I, I, know, I know there's these things. And we can get them sorted out. And have a wee bit of interest. Maybe you thought like that. But there came a time when that changed. And when God began to work in your heart, that's what he did. He broke you. He broke your will. And he crushed your spirit. So that you were brought all of a sudden to realize of how you were offending him. And you became so aware that, that you were a sinner. You know, 
before you, beforehand, there were certain things in life you said, oh, well, that's a sin and that's a, that's a sin. But you never really thought of yourself in terms of being, being a, in the sight of God a sinner. And you're saying a sinner. You thought a sinner is somebody who's really evil. Sinner is somebody who's, who's really, really their whole life is just it's going down. Everybody you can look around and say, oh, look at that person. He's a sinner. She's a sinner because of the, the particular way they live. Their life is awful. No, that's not what sinner is. Bible tells us what sin is. <laughs> sin is coming short of the glory of God. Wow. And that means there's not one of us can attain to that. Because the glory of God demands perfection. There's none of us. We, it doesn't matter how, how good we may appear to be in life. We still come short. And it's only when God's Spirit comes into our life, into our heart, that we, we recognize that. That we see sin as for what it is. And we see its offensiveness before God. And that's what makes us cry out like the, the publican did, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because it, all of a sudden we see sin uh, for what it really is. And of course, part of the, the Holy Spirit's work is to uh, convict us of our sin. And that is ongoing in life. You will find that you might say to yourself, oh, well, once, once I've started following the Lord and the years go on, I won't know this sense of sin. Oh, yeah. We were singing Psalm 51 there. That is a Davidic psalm, one of David's psalms that he wrote years after he became king. And it is probably the most powerful psalm that deals with the discovery of sin and the need of God dealing with sin that there is in the Bible. Came came on the back of David's murder of one of his best friends in order to try and hide his adulterous relationship uh, with uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. What David did was horrendous. God forgave him, but remember God put a warning to David. He said to him, yes, babe, because David, David sinned. You know, there was a while David, David thought he had got away with it. And uh, he had Uriah killed in order to try, and so Uriah wouldn't discover that, uh, that, that Bathsheba had become pregnant through this adulterous relationship. And so he thought he had got away with it. And David was in a backslidden condition at that time, because what he had done didn't trouble him until one day the prophet Nathan came to him, and he said to Nathan, said to, remember how Nathan told the story about the, the man who had... One little lamb, one little, just at the one sheep, one lamb. And next door there was a rich man who had loads of sheep, loads of lambs. And a friend came to visit the rich man. And what did the rich man do? Rather than taking one of his own flock, he jumped over the fence and took the one little lamb that his poor friend had, killed the lamb and used that for the dinner. He told this story to, to David. David was absolutely incensed. He was so angry when he heard that story. Oh, he said, that's an awful thing. He said, you know, this, that, that man's worthy of death. It's so awful. That man has to restore, give back loads of... And Nathan said to him, David, you're that person. That's what you did. God put you on the throne. He gave you everything. But that wasn't enough for you. Went over the wall, as it were, and took... Uriah's wife and had Uriah killed 
And it was like an arrow went into David's heart. And he just, he, he was broken as a result of it. And he realized the absolute enormity of what he had done. And he saw that what he had done was because of what was down in here within his heart. Deep down, things that he had never really discovered before. That, that there was this perverseness, there was this twistedness that lurked way down deep, that enabled anybody to do the worst. And so he goes to God, and he's now we know the Lord forgave him his sin, but the Lord said to him, because of what you've done, the sword won't leave your house. And we know that that's what happened, because sadly, within David's family, it, it, it really disintegrated the family. There was... There was all kinds of wrongdoings and murders and all kinds of things going on within his family. Painful sometimes to read. You know, it's, if there was one thing that you could say was wrong in David's life, he was not a good father. He might have given instruction to Solomon. But when you look at, when you look at, the, at David, the, David's family, you realize that his, his fatherly instruction obviously was not the best. David's life in some ways, although he was a man after God's own heart, there were aspects to David's life that, that weren't what should have been followed. And uh, it's, it's very interesting when you really go in depth and look at, look at people's lives. That even although God said of David, he's a man after my own heart, yet there was still so much in David's life that... That, that was wrong. So there is this discovery of sin. That even the best of people. That there is still this sin. And that's what God does. He, he shows us. And when he shows us that. It, I'll tell you something. It humbles us. You know there might be times as you go along. And you might even congratulate yourself from time to time. You might say. Ah you know this. I'm not too bad a, a person. And you might have moments where you judge yourself against other people. And the Bible says don't do that. Don't ever do that. Don't judge anyone lest you be judged. But sometimes we make comparisons and we say, you know, I'm doing all right. Well, the moment we say to ourselves, you know, I'm doing all right, it won't be long until the Lord will allow something that will bring you down. And all of a sudden, instead of congratulating yourself, you're in the dust again. And you're saying, oh, woe is me, for I am undone. And the Lord will keep us there. So that our eye will discover more and more of, of who he is. Because that's, that's, that's part of what he wants us to do. We see when, 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 the, when the Spirit convicts us of our sin, we see of how we have, we have grieved the Spirit. We have violated his law. We have, have trampled his word underfoot. That's what we do. When we sin, we trample God's word underfoot. When you get a proper glimpse of, of who the Lord is, any sense of flippancy that we might have in the presence of the Lord goes like that. You know, that's one of the dangers. Is that we, we sometimes bring God down in our thinking to our own level. And that's a sin. Part of our problem is because, and this is a wonder, this is a mystery of who God is. In the, sentence, the second person of the Godhead, his son, Jesus Christ into this world to become one with us. And yes, Jesus became one with us. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Which is, it's a great mystery. But what we've got to always remember is that God 
is different to us. And in Psalm 50, we find the Lord bringing this accusation against uh, the, the Israelites. Because that, that's, that's one, of the, one of the things that, that, that they, they had actually said. They took God down. Uh, it says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And prior to that, you see that uh, there's a list of the things that they were doing wrong. And what they were actually, their sin was, they thought, oh, they said, God doesn't mind. And their thinking was that the Lord is, he thinks the way I do. The Lord looks at things the way I do. And they were thinking, oh, it's not too bad. He'll overlook it. Lord says, no, I don't. You don't understand who I am. I am altogether different to you. I am altogether holy and just and righteous and pure. I'm not like you. And we've got to remember that, that just as the heavens are high above the earth, and so are God's ways and thoughts than us. And so that is often what the Lord does. When, when, he, when our heart is broken and our spirit is crushed, we're brought to get an awesome view of, of who God is. And very often we, you know, as we look to the Lord, we see how just he is and how unjust we are, how consistent he is and how inconsistent we are, how weak we are and how strong he is. But you know, again, when, when we look at our own lives, so often one of the things that discourages us is that we see how how useless we really are. Now, we like to think that we're in control of everything. It's, it's, it's human nature. We often use the expressions, we're masters of your own destiny. Great idea, isn't it? Now, we love to have the, the reins in our hands and we're, we're in control. We like to think that. Every single person at one stage or other in their life will discover they're not. And you know, it's a very difficult thing when you don't feel in control. We use the expression, oh, he's a control freak or she's a control freak. But whether you are a control freak or not, everybody likes to be in control of their own life. But sometimes you've all, we've all felt it. And you say, you know this, I feel utterly and altogether out of control of my life. I really don't feel that I'm in control of anything. And you know this, that's a horrible place to be. But you know, again, the Lord will bring us sometimes there to discover, I'm in control. Hand your life over to me. Give your life to me. And I'll lead you in the right way to go. And again, this, this is why it's so difficult for us, because it goes against human nature. It goes against all that we are. But that's where the Lord wants to take us to this place. We are not in control. You know, that's... And with regard to an, another aspect of it, that is often true with regard to finding Jesus Christ as our Savior. How many people think that they're in control of that? And they say, I'll sort that out when I choose. A lot of people think like that. A lot of people come to church and say, they hear the gospel, the invitation of the gospel, the message of salvation. They're challenged and they say, oh yeah, you know this? I need to get it sorted out with the Lord. But I'm not ready to do that yet. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it till next year. I'll leave it till I finish this work I'm on. I'll leave, it's not suitable for me just now, but later on I'll deal with that. When I retire, I'll sort that. You're not in control. 
King Agrippa thought he was like that. He thought, remember when Saul was reasoning about righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, and we, we find the trembling there, and we find of Agrippa saying, when I have a more convenient season, I'll call for you. You know, we never read that he ever called for Paul again. He thought he was in control. People think they're in control, they're not. And that's why the Bible says, seek the Lord while he is to be found, call upon him while he is near. When it is the day of salvation. And so we find that here we have, as I say, this description. Time is going, I'll have to move on. There's a few more things I was going to say there. But the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. And uh, although you might be saying, this is, this, is, this is very heavy what you're saying. We know that the Christian rejoices. We have a joy. We have a a joy as as to who we are, an identity of who we are. We know who we belong to and where we're going. But it's it's the sin that brings us down. That's what what brings us down. So the second thing, and just in a few words, what it says here, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He's near. Isn't that beautiful? He's near. All the time he's near. But he's especially near to those who are broken in their heart and crushed in their spirit. And we've always got to remember, we've got to take God's word. We mustn't just go on how we feel. Because today, you as a believer, the Lord is near to you. Whether you feel it or not. Sometimes we're conscious of it. Sometimes we're not. Even when we feel far away, the Lord is still near. But he, there are times when he will make his presence really known. And we've got to be careful in saying that the Lord, is, the Lord isn't here. Very often the Lord is present and we don't know it. For instance, when, when Jacob ran away from home and when he lay down under the stars that night, he felt so isolated and lonely. And he probably never felt more bereft of God and bereft of anything. Remember how he had to run from home. But the Lord revealed himself that night and the Lord was showing to Jacob, I'm here, right beside you. And it's not just, I've just come. Remember the ladder, the vision that he saw of the ladder going up to heaven and the the angels uh, ascending and descending. And as has often been highlighted, the particular order that they first were ascending the ladder and then descending. We would expect them to be, when he saw that ladder, that they would be descending first. That coming down there, I was coming down to see you, Jacob. I'm going to, the Lord sent me down to surround you. No. They were, first of all, ascending. Why? Because they were already there. Jacob didn't know that. But the angelic presence, ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation, the angels were already present. Even although Jacob felt that he was all alone. But at that moment he discovered he was never less alone. So we must be careful in saying, oh the Lord is not near. The Lord is often much nearer than ever we realize. So the Lord is, the Lord is always uh, with his people. And the, the wonderful thing is that the Lord... While the Lord is near with us here in this, in this world, it's not only here he's going to be near. He's going to be near with us forever and ever. And he's going to be nearer us 
in glory than ever he was with us here. In this sense, is that in this world, sadly, there are other competitors for the number one place in our heart other than the Lord. It shouldn't be, but it's a fact. We have our idols. In glory, there will be no competition. The Lord will have central place, as he should. And as he does here, but there are all these other distractions. In glory, there will be none. And that's why Jesus said to the Father before, well, in, in this great prayer, he said, Father, I will, that all those that you have given me be with me where I am, that I may, be, that I may show them my glory which you have given to me. Isn't that wonderful? You know, we miss, and our hearts break when our loved ones are taken home. But if we could see the home they'd gone to, that would change everything. And their going home is as an answer to that prayer. Father, I will. I'm praying right now. I'm praying. I'm looking forward to the day when they're all going to come home to be with me. That's, that's what, what, what the Lord is saying. So there's this great idea of nearness. And because of what the Lord has, has done for us and given to us, and his love is so great, he tells us, I give them eternal life, and none of, not one shall perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. And the Lord saves us. He saves us throughout life. He saved us, first of all, in taking us into, into his kingdom. He saves us through many toils and dangers. He saves us. And you know, there's, we, haven't, we have no idea how often he has actually delivered us and saved us in this life from tragedy, from things that we don't know. The deliverances that are going on day by day. Sometimes we say, whoa, that was close. Poor, that could have been bad. Could have been a lot worse. But there might be loads of things and you have no idea. Because there are forces at work we can't see. He delivers us in temptation. Of course we're tempted. Of course sometimes we give in to temptation. But you know so often what the Lord does is. Although the temptation is there. He removes the opportunity from us. In order to give in to the temptation. The opportunity is taken away. Temptation's powerful. The opportunity is gone. And sometimes the opportunity is there, but the desire to yield has been taken away. So often the Lord delivers us from the ruin to which we could come. And again, the Lord saves us from just so many of the enemies that are around and about, and he saves us ultimately from death. Oh yes, we will die. The process of death is something we cannot avoid. But he has promised that he will be with us in death, even in death's dark veil. He says he will lead us, his rod and his staff will be there. That last journey, the very last journey, the last thing we do in this life, that momentous time, not on our own. That's a, that's a great thing of having the Lord. Because if you don't have the Lord, you're on your own. Family, friends, they can go all the way through life with you. But they can't go through death with you. That's where, you come, that's where you're on your own own but the Lord says no you're not I'm with you all the way to the and I will take you up on the other side and that's at the heart of the great Christian faith 
the resurrection, the resurrection power of Jesus. First bringing life into our soul, and then knowing that in due time, although the body rests in the grave, there will be a reunion of body and soul in glory forever. May we all know this for our own selves, that we might all have this peace, this assurance of the nearness of God in our own lives. Let us pray. Lord, we pray today to guard us and keep us and guide us and uphold us and bless us. Lord, we need you all the time. And we discover this more and more of how just how much we do need you. Forgive us, Lord, for when we disobey you. Forgive us, Lord, for when we don't lean upon you. Forgive us, Lord, for how hard-hearted we can be so often. Forgive us, Lord, for our self-interest. Help us, Lord, to always be looking to you. Guide us and keep us and bless us and part us with your blessing. Do us all good and bless all whom we love. And take away our sin in Jesus' name. Amen.